Open up in your Bibles to Micah chapter 6. Last week we were in Micah chapter 6 and 7. I titled the sermon, uh, A Better Focus, A Brighter Life. And uh, that's not really a great title for the sermon, but the bulletins were already done, so I, I didn't know what to do. So that's the, that's the title here. But it's got, it kind of works pretty good, in a sense, because it's a good summary of Micah 6 and 7. So in Micah 6 and 7, you remember that uh, God is laying out his final indictment against Judah, and Micah's raising his final lament. But you remember that the book actually ends with a word of hope. If you look at Micah chapter 7, verse 7, Micah says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And he goes on and actually concludes the entire book in verse 18 of chapter 7 with a with what we called last week, what we described as worship. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? Verse 20, the last verse of the, of the book, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you sw- have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So the, in a sense, Micah could be focusing on what's going wrong in Judah. He could be focusing on all the ways that Judah is not living up to the call of God. He could be focusing on all of the sources he has, legitimate and justified, for lamenting and being sad and sorrowful. And, right, and we can resonate with that. Right? There's a lot of things in this world you don't have to look too hard to feel overwhelmed and hopeless and full of lamentation. But what he does instead is he fixes his eyes on the character of God. He fixes his eyes on the revealed truths about God in Scripture, and that gives him the strength to wait well. To, to wait in a way that God wants his people to wait for him to work. In a sense, that's what we're talking about now this morning. I feel like, sometimes I feel like it's every week, every month, every couple of months, there's some new study, some new report saying uh, how much our culture has changed, how Fewer people are attending church, fewer church attendees are reading their Bibles, fewer people in the culture are believing in God or in Jesus. It just seems more and more like the odds are against us. Do you feel that pressure against the church, against Christianity? Do you feel that pressure in your own faith and in your own spirit that the odds are against you? That the odds are against us as the people of God who are trying to wait well, who are trying to be these, this worshiping presence here. We're trying to do what God has called us to do. The odds are against us. But what we read in Micah 6 is, is really interesting because what it says is, you know, yes, Judah's falling apart and Micah's got all of these reasons to lament. But very fundamentally, we have... What everybody wants. We have the good. We have what everybody is searching elsewhere for and, and even leaving the church to try to find because they can be frustrated with Christians and with the church sometimes. But truly, what God has given us here is the good. And that's really the issue. Look with me here in Micah chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 6 to 8. So open up there, look with me at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. So here's really the context for verse 8. And it is, uh, we're going to kind of see that Judah here and and God are mutually exasperated with each other. You know the the emotion exasperation? (laughs) 
It's, this is sort of exasperation. I don't know if there's an emoji for it. <laughs> right? Uh, mutual exasperation, verse 6. I want you, as I read verses 6 and 7, I want you to notice a heightening kind of exaggeration of their exasperation, an escalating exaggeration of their Exasperation of the three big E words. Notice this. It sounds like a teenager. Uh, those of you who have been teenagers or who know teenagers. Uh, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams? Okay, calm down. 10,000 rivers of oil, right? Parents were all, oh boy. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see what, what they're asking, we see especially in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. So these are sort of like, uh, these, are, these are the pseudo, the false questions of teenagers. Like these aren't real questions. And this is a, a pagan approach to this kind of relationship. And what they're saying is, what do we have to do, God? What do we have to do to get you to do what we want you to do? You need a burnt offering? You need, ten, you need a thousand rams? Oh, sure, I'll just kill my firstborn kid for you. Like, what? No, stop. But this is their, their question. What do we have to do? For God to do what we want. What is going to be good enough, God, for you to bless us and give us the good life? What do you require to give us all the stuff that we want? Do you ever find that question banging around your heart sometimes? What are you doing, God? What am I doing wrong? Give me the good stuff. Tell me what I need to do to get the good. And know what they're doing, right? Because this is sort of like the, the teenager's Right? Uh, no offense, teenagers. I was a teenager once. This is sort of your, your line of reasoning, right? You're saying, uh, basically what they're saying is, look at God, he's ridiculous. That's what they're saying. Oh, sure, I've got a thousand rams laying around that I'll just sacrifice to get. So they're, they're saying God is ridiculous and he can't be pleased. Which means that if we want to get good, we're just going to have to go get it for ourselves. If there's good out there and, and we're going to get it, we're going to have to get it for ourselves however we can. And that is why the situation is what it is in Judah. That's why they're looking to the nations of Israel, they're looking to Egypt, they're looking to all of these other places outside of God, outside of the Word, to give them guidance on how to live a good life and get a good life. And that's our situation a lot too, isn't it? God's ridiculous. He can't be pleased. He's not going to give us the good that we need, so I'm just going to go get it myself. So the question as we approach verse 8 is, what is good? What is good enough for God? What does He require? We know that God can help us get good things. We just have to figure out how to convince Him to do that. We just have to figure out how to convince Him to bless us. Have you felt this way before? Am I the only one that has a deeply pagan soul? <laughs> now we come to verse 8, and this is God's exasperation in response. He has told you, oh man, what is good. This is the, the parent's response, right? Like, I've told you. 
He has told you what is good. What is he saying? He says, you know what I said was good. Why are you asking about what's good enough? Why are you asking about getting from me what you think you need for the good life? I've told you what was good. It's interesting here, just in this first line of verse 8, it says that he has told you, oh man, what is good. It's the word man and the word good are both uh, kind of hyperlinks back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The word man here uh, is the word Adam, Adam, and then the word good is the word that God says at the end of each day in Genesis 1 and 2. It was good, it was good, behold, it was very good. And this is, this is Micah, this is God saying through Micah, uh, he's, he's putting the people of Judah back in the right position. Remember who you are and remember this world that I gave you. You are a creation. You were made by God. You were made for God. And you were made good. God made man and woman. He said, good. You were made good. You were made for good. What is good enough for God? What he said was good is good. That's what he's saying. What God said was good is good. And this, this is really where we're going this morning. What God says is good, that's what's best. I don't know where we get these ideas from, but I, I definitely have them, and I've heard them from the people I talk to. We tend to think that there's, there's what's best for me, and then there's what's good to do. And those are different things. What's best for me and what's good to do are different things. And so... Right or wrong kind of depends on your point of view. Your right, your wrong is going to be maybe a little bit different than my right and my wrong. And now God, right in the Bible, we've got this sort of cold, elevated standard of righteousness. But it just doesn't work in the real world. We have more complicated situations. This is not going to work. What God has said is good is not good enough. And so we approach God the way that the people of Judah did. We say, listen, God, listen, your, your righteousness is awesome. That sounds good on paper. It's not going to work in the real world. So let's compromise. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do some of the religious stuff that you like. We're going to do a little do-gooder stuff like you like. Okay? But listen, we want to get some of the stuff that we expect too. And it's out of that situation, out of that arrangement that Judah is speaking in a frustrated manner here. What do we have to do? The problem with that perspective is that God cares deeply about us and our life in this world. Right, the, the fundamental idea of that, uh, that mode of thinking is that God's over here kind of He's like playing with his little action figures in this ideal, imagined world. And we're living over here in this real world. Like we've got real understanding of the way things work. And God's over here with his Genesis 1 and 2 ideas. But the reality is that God cares deeply about us and our life in this world. We are not a byproduct of or an afterthought of the making or creating of the world. Right? Every other like uh, tribal, human uh, idea, myth, scientific myth of how the, the world and how the universe began, 
always ends up, whether you go back into like the Babylonian ones, the, the Indian stories, or the scientific model that's prevalent today, somehow this life, us, is a byproduct of what happened. The gods were angry and chopped some god up, and then it became people. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Particles slammed into each other and fast forward, and it became people. And we can live this, our lives as if we're just byproducts and afterthoughts. And so then we have to take ownership of us getting the good out of life and us living a good life. But the Bible story is utterly unique. It says that people are the culmination of the works of God. That he made the world for us, right? Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. All of this was in preparation for man and woman, for people. God made the world for us, and he made us for this world. So the way that God has for us, the, the good that he has for us, isn't, his way isn't just fine or okay for some people. It's not uh, tolerable, but in some ways rewarding. What God calls right is good, and there's nothing better. And this is really important for our understanding of the, the situation behind Micah 6.8. Because Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly? It can just sound like a list of stuff to do. Like you can just turn to any page in the Bible and there's another list of stuff to do. And you can either do the stuff on that page or do the stuff on that page or just pick and choose. And it just, it can seem random. It can seem like noise. We've got to approach Micah 6.8 from this perspective. What God calls right that's what's good, and there's nothing better. There's nothing better in life than what Micah 6.8 describes. Because that's what God has called right. What does God require of you? I love that language here in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You can just hear kind of the teenage voice in the back of your mind, like, what, what do I have to do, right? What is required of me? What is it that this demanding judge, this sovereign overlord, who re, what does he require of us slaving wretches? Have a good life. <laughs> That's what, what? You want us to have a good life? You want us to... You want us to... In, Enjoy you to live in fellowship with you and with each other and and see your glory embedded in everything you want us to have a, a good life. I mean the reality is that right God made us as required. Was what did he say when he made people? He said, Good. What do you require? I made you the way that you're required to be. And so we are to live the life that he designed for us to enjoy him in. Of course, there's a big problem, which is uh, the problem is sin. God said good when he made us. God said good about everything that he put us in. And then we left it. We left the good. So from Genesis 4 onward, the project of Scripture, what it's pointing to, what it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, what then the apostles lead us in Scripture in discovering and exploring, all of, of the Bible is geared towards introducing us to Jesus Christ in order to bring us back into what is good. 
You remember at the end of the book of Galatians, we were, we were in for a while ago, for a while, not very long ago. And Paul says, uh, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but only what counts. New creation. New creation. In Jesus, through Jesus, because of what Jesus did, we are brought back to what is good. We are brought back to the good. Right? Jesus was the one good person. He was, a, he was a good person. He was good again in the assessment of God. What does the Father say when he's baptized? What does he say up on the Mount of Transfusion? I am well pleased with my son. He's doing it right. This guy is good. Listen to him. And so then everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, who says, I don't know what's good, and I'm not getting it, I don't know where to find it. Jesus, you're good. I, wanna, I want to listen to you. I want you to save me for what I'm doing, and I want you to lead me into what you, whatever it is that you've gotten you're doing. And whoever puts their faith and trust in Jesus then is made good again before God. God looks at us who have put our faith in Jesus and says, oh yeah, yeah, good. Good. And it was good. That's our position in Jesus Christ, but we also need some help with our practice of living that life out. Our experience of the good that Jesus made us to be and has given us. We need Scripture to help us. We need Micah 6, 8 to help us. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Jesus reiterates the importance of these three things himself again in Matthew 23, 23. You remember this? This is in one of his uh, battles with the Pharisees. He says, you guys, you're doing a great job tithing the herbs out of your garden, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. He's saying you, you, these are the important Things. These are the big rocks in following God. It's the same vision that's pictured by Jesus in Matthew 5 at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew, the Sermon on the, on the Mount. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, and then they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. And this is what Jesus is summing up in the two great commandments in Mark 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Walk humbly with your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love mercy and do justice. It's not just in Scripture. It's not just in Jesus' words. Micah 6 eight doesn't just capture a summation of the Bible's teaching. They did this, uh, I guess it's the longest lasting study of, of a wide variety of, of uh, um, aspects of these, of these different people's lives. Uh, they got you know, a couple hundred people and they tracked them for 75 years to see what are the factors that make a life a good life. So the project of Micah 6, 6 to 8. What are the factors that make a person have a, a good, a great life? And they, they pointed out, well, there's all these different interesting differentiating features of these people's lives. But what, what they summed it up with, the director of the grant study, he says, after 75 years of research, $20 million spent on this, he said, all the data points to a simple five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. 
full stop. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Be overwhelmed, subsumed, and have your life completely encircled by my love, and live that love out. <laughs> That's what the, the Grant study founders found. You look at all the world's religions, they all love Micah 6.8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. But they don't know what it means, and they don't know how to do it. And that's what we have. What we have is this wonderful message that what God calls right, that's what's good, and there's nothing better. So let's look at that now. Let's look at what is good. Micah 6.8, I want you to observe something as we begin, because we're going to actually take these in reverse order. What is good? What does the Lord require? He says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. It's almost in descending order. We're going from the outside to what's at the center. We're going from what's, at, what's built on the top of the pyramid to what's at the base. Do justice, love mercy, and then walk humbly is really the foundation for this. So we're going to start there with walk humbly with your God. What is good? The first thing is to walk humbly with our God. The word here is better translated, walk carefully. That is paying attention to God in your life. Which I'm rephrasing for us as arrange your life under and around God. Be careful to live your life with God. But I'm sad that we're missing the word walk in here because walk is such an important word in this brief charge to walk humbly with our God. How do you walk? You know, if you watch a two or three year old walk, how do they walk? They, you know, they're jumping, they're, they're trying to, to gain flight, right? They're, they're, but, but the rest of us, you walk by taking steps. You take steps because why? Because life is long. Life is long, and every day matters. This morning matters, and this afternoon matters. Lunch matters, supper matters, your bedtime routine matters. Every step, every part of it matters. God doesn't need us to jump with two feet through life. He doesn't need us to hurry up and get somewhere, what he wants us to do is slow down and stay here with him. Walk with him. Because God is where all the good comes from. Walk humbly with your, walk carefully with him. Arrange your life in relation to him. Pay attention to him because he's where the good comes from. Our tendency, or what's, at, what's in tension with this word, is what we see in Psalm chapter Psalm 1, the first psalm, verse 1. Blessed is the one, do you remember this? Blessed is the one who doesn't walk. Blessed is the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't stand with scoffers, sinners, who doesn't sit with scoffers. Do you remember that? This is the, the, the tale of the, the unhappy man. Happy is the person who doesn't do that. And think about that scene, right? This is a path that they're on. They start walking with the counsel of the wicked. They stand, and then they're sitting. So they've, they've stopped walking. They've stopped going forward. They're surrounded by unhappiness. 
It says, don't sit in the seat with scoffers and mockers. Scoffers and mockers, what's that experience like? You see that thing? Yeah, that's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. You see that thing? That's stupid. That, right? They're surrounded by unhappiness. And what the psalm goes on to say is that they're empty. They're like the, the husks after you get the stuff that you want. They're what's left. That's what their life is like. And why did they go there? Why did they end up sitting in that bad place? Why did they end up so empty? They ended up there because they thought that they'd found a quicker and better path to a good life. Have you ever ventured down that path too? You found a quicker, better path to a good life? Only to find yourself stalled and surrounded by, I was going to say stupidity, but I want to say stupidity, but surrounded by something like that. So we want to walk humbly with our God. And the second thing is what is good? Let's, let's move outward. To love mercy. Now the word here, those of you who have kind of been around church for a while, you might recognize this word. It's uh, to love hesed. Remember this? So this is in most places in the Old Testament, this is translated steadfast love. So this means, literally you would say, uh, and to love love. But it's specifically God's love. What is good to love God's love? What, is that, what does it mean? Okay, first of all, to love God's love means to love it. To love that God loves this way, that this is our God. To love it, to love what it says. What does God's love say about you? That you're beloved. <laughs> what does it mean? To love what it means. To, it means for, for us and for our lives. Love all that it touches. Love everything about God's love and everywhere it goes. Love what it says about you. Love that this is the way that he is. Love what it says about you. Love the people who have been beloved by this love. Love this way of being in the world. Love this steadfast love way of being. Right. This is the love that defines God's character. He is love. This is the love that defines who we are. We are the beloved. And this is what defines this whole project. We are the ones whom God has shown steadfast covenant love to. So what he's saying here is he's saying... All of these things, love God and his steadfast love, love that you're beloved by him, love the gospel in your life, and love the people who have been shaped by and gathered by this love. This is what Jesus gets at in John 13 when he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I loved you, my hesed, my steadfast love, I want you to love each other in this way, and this is how you're going to be identified in the world. That you love one another. So we start with our relationship with God, and then we move into God, uh, our relationship with each other as shaped by God, as opposed to what many of us struggle with, which is not to love people with a love like God, but rather to love the likable. I'd rather love likable people, right? That's easier. To love the likable, to love those who are like me. Have you heard this, uh, this statistic? I, I should have looked this up a little bit better, but uh, they say that your life will be the sum total of your five closest friends. Like whatever your, your health or your fitness, 
you, you know, you're gonna you're gonna look like your five closest friends. Your your wealth or whatever is gonna be the sum of your five closest friends. All of these different things is all about your five closest friends. And then you go into the church and you look around at the church and you think, well, should I should I associate with these people? Like, these are not always the healthiest people. These are not always the wealthiest people. These are not always the people who are just really aggressive for leadership and making a difference in this world. Like, should I surround myself with these people? Well, what matters to us? Right, is the goal to be the fittest? Is the goal to be the wealthiest? Is the, the goal to be the savviest leader? Or is the goal to be the person who gets the love of God the best? The person who feels most loved. Isn't that the best? So surround yourself with the people who feel loved by God the most. And they're not going to be the people who love themselves the most. They're going to be the people that you look at and they say, I don't know why they're so happy. (laughs) Because they're beloved. Love that. Love that. This grace of God, this mercy of God, this love of God that welcomes us all to the table of Jesus, this is to be our defining characteristic. Our defining characteristic is this grace, which is so important because we're going to go out from this place into a world stacked with tribes of even less likable people. And it's our job to go out there and love them with this love. It is this grace and this welcome that makes us what we are called to be. And what's that? You remember the light of the world. We are to go out and be light. And grace is our light. Love is our light. The love of God in us is our light. So as we look at Micah 6 we see that our walk with God, walk humbly with our God, creates community around His love which then finally spills over as we do justice, as we share that love with the world. So the third thing here in, the, in good is do justice. Now the word do is kind of confusing. How do you just do justice? The word maybe better translated is make, make justice. I don't know if that's even any better. The New English translation translates this as promote justice which I'm sort of translating for our sake here as help what's right happen. Help what's right happen. Now I love that the good life here that God lays out happens in normal society. God's idea of the good life exists in the world that we live in. It exists in the Genesis 3 and 4 and onward broken world of sin and sinners. You don't have to go into a monastery to enjoy the good life. You don't have to go travel down to an all-inclusive in the Baja Peninsula to live the good life. You can live the good life here in in the wilderness with these people. And doing justice and helping what's right happen is part of that. Address the world that is full of inequalities. Inequalities of chance, Somebody born in one place and not another. Inequalities of foolishness. Right? We've all made decisions that now we're like, ah, and here we are. <laughs> Inequalities of sin. 
and also inequalities created by exploitation, by abuse, by legislative decisions that are not motivated by pure hearts. And our job as the people of God in this world, our job is to put our thumbs on Hesed, to put our thumbs on steadfast love and faithfulness in order to make life a little more right for those who've been most wronged. To help what's right happen. Look with me here in Micah 6. Just look two verses, a few verses earlier. Look at verse 4. What does God say to Judah? He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. We are the people of verse 4. We are the people who have been brought up from the land of slavery. We are the people who have been redeemed. And so all God is calling us to do when he says, help right happen, he's saying, hey, as I've been in this world, I want you to be concerned for what's right. What I've done for you, how I've treated you, is how I want you to treat other people. A thousand years later, John says it, he says, uh, we love because God first loved us. We love in this way because God loved us in this way. You know, there are people in this world who are really into trying to do things that they consider to be justice. In a, a pejorative for them, I think, uh, recently is social justice warriors, um, which are sort of a way of describing a person who seems to be into justice issues, but ultimately motivated in a way that seems to be about their sense of righteousness and their feeling good about themselves by doing these things. But we care... We care for justice issues. We care for those who have, are having a hard go of things and who have been wronged by life because we too, we were victims who were rescued and delivered and set free. And we were villains who've been forgiven. We approach this question because of who we are, not in order to be something. We've walked humbly with our God. And we have fallen in love with his steadfast love. And so now we live this way in this world. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 5.8. He says, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I was challenged this week. Listening to, to a podcast, the, uh, the conversation went along the lines of uh, how the church is perceived in the world. And what the, the conversation partners were describing is that uh, the world, the, the foremost question in the minds of the world is not, is your faith true? That's not the first question they're asking anymore. Now they're asking a question removed from that. They're saying, is your faith any good? Is your faith good? Are you doing good deeds? Are you the light of the world? Are you doing good deeds that, that the world can see and give glory to your Father who is in heaven? Is our faith good? Well, it's, it sure is, doggone it. <laughs> or it can be. Because what God calls right is good. And there is nothing better. Alright, so just a few questions to close. Uh, 
in a verse with three commands, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. I guess for us just to reflect on that for a moment, uh, how are we walking? How are we walking? In the Christian world that I grew up in, it was commonplace to ask each other, how's your walk? You ever been asked that before? How's your walk? I think we need to resurrect that line of inquiry in our conversations. How's your walk going? How's your walk? Are you taking steps? <laughs> or have you sat down with the scoffers? Have you embedded yourself and are you stuck in a ring of voices who are only criticizing, critiquing, mocking? I can't think of a better description for almost all media. Get out of there. Take steps with God. Are we doing that? What do we love? Do we, do we value Christ's way or do we go back to that first set of questions where we say, hey, Jesus, I think your stuff's awesome. It's just not real. I'd love your stuff. It's just not going to work. Or do we love it and value it and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Jesus here. I love his love. I love his way. And I love what he loves. I love the church. Right? The church, this is to be the place where we learn grace. Do you remember the end of the book of Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these wonderful love and grace and mercy things. And then he says right away, he goes and he says, apply it in the church. Bear one another's burdens. And fulfill the law of Christ. And a few verses later, he says, do good to all people, but especially those of the household of faith. Love Jesus and his ways and the people who are his beloved. Right? One of the things that I love about church is uh, this is where we get to learn how to love difficult people. You know who I'm thinking of. You! <laughs> This is where we get to learn Hesed. This is where we get to learn steadfast love. What do we love? And then lastly, friends, what are, we, what are we helping? What's our thumb heavy on in this world? What is our thumb resting on? And I want to put in mind here the goal, if in case this is at all tricky for you, because the world has made it as tricky as it can be right now. But I want you to keep in view what is our goal as God's people in uh, where we put our thumb. And it's from 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul says, All of our work is to extend grace to more and more people and increase thanksgiving. I want to live in a world where people are thankful for our church. Don't you want to live in a world where people are thankful for you? Where they are thankful to God because of our grace? Because we've put our thumb on the scale in a way that they look at and they say, Wow. Thank you. How do we get good from God? That's the, the basic kind of human question, basic pagan question. And what Micah says is this. Listen to what God has said. Live by what He's already given us, what He's made us to be, and then what He's brought us back in Jesus to be. This is the good life. The life that... God looked at in Jesus and he says, good. The life that Jesus gives us, that God says, good. And the life that the Spirit of Jesus is working in us. And if we will open ourselves up to this, in time, even we ourselves will look at our lives and others will look at our lives and they'll say, and we'll say, this is good. 
Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do love your word and we love the, the simple charge that we receive in Micah 6.8, repeated in so many places in Scripture, to remind us that you possess what is good. Every good gift comes from you. And your word is a good gift. And the way that you have given us to live, your law, what is right, is good. And we're not going to find anything better anywhere else. You have given us the best. Lord, you know the, the forces in competition with you in our hearts. Some things that are sin, some things that seem wise and good and are valued in the world. Some things that are even good and valuable and honorable. But their intention with this, with this call to arrange our lives under and around you, to love your love, to love Jesus, to love this mission and work and calling that we've received, and then to go out and help what's right happen. Lord, that's what we want to be. That's what we want to do. And so we ask that you would bless this word in our hearts, that all of us probably have some question related to this that we need to reflect on. I pray that you would help us as we reflect on it, that you would work good in us, that you would protect this word so that it dwells in us richly, to make us as individuals and us as a church people that people are thankful for. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.